Thanks so much, Michael. Great to have uh, that open in front of us. I uh, want to say as we start tonight um, that uh, this is Father's Day, but this is not a Father's Day message. This is the next message in our series where we've been working through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And we're up to chapter 6, and we kind of jump in right in the middle of an argument. I'll bring us up to speed with that, and, uh, and hopefully tonight we'll be able to understand some of what it says a little bit more. So let me pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather tonight uh, in the warmth and the safety of this place. We ask, Father, that this ancient letter might live for us tonight, and that by your Holy Spirit and this word, you might change us to live in ways that are pleasing to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, can I remind you, just as we start as well, we have a Q&A time, a question and answer time at the end of the service, uh, sorry, at the end of the sermon. So if you've got a question, you might want to jot it down on, on, uh, on your way through if you don't have a very good uh, memory, that is. So uh, I said we're in the middle of an argument that's kind of unfolding. If you have a look with me, last week uh, we heard about the love of God that was shown to us when we weren't really lovely. And so Paul says in chapter 5, verse 20, the law was brought in so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, the question that comes in the start of chapter 6, chapter 6 verse 1, is this, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? This is Paul's first question. He's got two questions we're going to look at tonight. So, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And you might think, I don't think I ever asked that question. That's not something I'm wondering. Please solve it for me tonight at church. But, but he, bear with me. I think we get to this question when we hear you're saved by faith, not by works. If I tell you, you don't win God's favor by being really good, that's not why he saved you. He saved you when you were completely unlovely. Then you might be tempted to say, well, if God loved me when I wasn't very lovely, it doesn't matter if I go on sinning. In fact, I might just keep on sinning and he'll keep pouring grace in. So Paul says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? He saves us from wondering. He has a little answer straight after that. He says, by no means, by no means. And you go, sure, I'm in church. Of course, they're not going to encourage me to sin, right? But why? Why is that what he says? Well, let me show you how foolish this argument is by giving you an analogy. I like analogies. We're going to the Philippines, and the Philippines is on the Pacific Rim of Fire, which basically means they get earthquakes, they get volcanoes, and they're amazingly blessed to get the third thing in the trifecta. They get hurricanes as well. Terrible, right? Lots of disasters come to the Philippines. Now, a while ago, a particularly devastating one, in fact, the most powerful cyclonic uh, event ever recorded happened in the Philippines uh, called Yolanda, and... Uh, upwards of 10,000 people were killed. A complete tragedy in this place. Now, if, how fast were the winds? 350 kilometers an hour is what the winds were, were like at that time. Now, if you brought that wind into Oran Park with all of our brick and mortar and everything here, we would be destroyed. But if you build your houses out of bamboo, wood and corrugated iron, you can imagine the devastation that follows. Now, incredibly, what the world does when there's devastation, however, is it brings aid to help people who've been devastated. So if there's a terrible flood or an earthquake or something, the, the world pours aid into that situation. So where there's disaster, inevitably, the world will bring aid. 
Now, the argument that Paul has just introduced would sound like this. Where disaster increases, aid increases. So, shall we wreak havoc that aid may increase? Are you with me? If the world is going to bless our place with all sorts of aid, if there's a terrible disaster, then should we make our own disasters that there might get more aid tipped into our country? That's crazy talk, isn't it? And so there's a certain immorality to that. It would be immoral to make a disaster in your nation to get international aid. And Paul is saying, well, it's fundamentally immoral to say that you're going to go on sinning that grace may increase. But he has much more to say tonight, and that's what we're going to try and unpack. In order to do that, I'm going to indulge a little bit in myself, because it's Father's Day, and tell you something about my favourite football side, uh, which is Liverpool. Now, I like Liverpool a lot. Does anyone follow Liverpool? Liverpool FC? Yes, I see some hands. Great. Okay, so I'm a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a fan. So I have, uh, you know, a jersey. Great. Back from when it had the right thing on the jersey. Am I right, Graham? Carlsberg, okay, right. So old school jersey, very good. Been following them for a while. And got to have a scarf. Now, now Jeff has pointed out that they're not all very bright supporters because although we can do this, he pointed out to me apparently looking at the photo that a whole bunch of them are holding their scarves upside down. But okay, all right. So, so here's the thing. I've been a fan of Liverpool for a long time, but I did something really crazy the other day when I was thinking of trying to find a sermon illustration for this point. And so what I did was I decided, hey, I've been following them for so long, now it is time for me to officially join the Liverpool Football Club. And so I became a member. I signed up, paid my money, and became a member of Liverpool Football Club. Now, that is a great thing. I'll tell you why. Well, because now the public knows that I'm a Liverpool fan because I wear my scarf around, particularly in my living room when I'm watching their games. So that's important. But the thing that's really changed is now Liverpool knows that I'm one of their supporters, right? They've got a little entry on a database somewhere that says Stuart Star is one of their fans. Now, I love that they know that I love them. That's great, right? But it's not only that. It's not only that. I now get benefits. So because I belong to Liverpool FC, I get discounts in their store. Right? So benefits flow to me. Isn't this wonderful? And now you're thinking to yourself, why are we talking about Liverpool FC? Bring it back to the Bible. So I'm going to do that. Have a look with me. At Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 2 to 4. Paul tells us that we shouldn't sin, that grace may increase. And then he says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So what was the long connection between Liverpool and this passage? The idea is that baptism is how we are joined into Jesus. We trust Jesus by faith, and our baptism and our faith join us into Jesus. So why is baptism so important? Well, I want to show you that baptism's always been important. And I want to show you some places where you see that. Now, when Jesus sent out his disciples at the end of his life, he said, go into all the world in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the... Yes, that is correct. The name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he said, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Baptism right at the heart of Jesus' commission. 
And then on the first day of the early church in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out and they say, they say, what's going on here? What should we do, brothers? And Peter stands up and he says, you should repent, you should be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Well, then we go to Acts chapter 8, where we have a man who's an Ethiopian eunuch, and he's reading the scriptures. Remember, he's traveling along in his chariot, and God directs Philip to go and run alongside the chariot. Do you remember this? And he says to him, hey man, what are you reading? And he says, I'm reading about this passage here, but I'm not sure what it's about. And starting right there, he explained the good news of Jesus. Having heard the good news of Jesus, what does he do? The man says, hey, here's some water. Why don't I get baptized? It's the next logical thing that follows. Or then Paul himself, after he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's taught by Ananias some more things about Jesus And he tells him, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And the next thing that Paul does is he's baptized. Faith and baptism. And then we see it again with Cornelius, a Roman centurion. He's taught about Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes. And Peter says to himself, do you know what we should do? We should baptize this mob. And so what I want you to see is there's a fundamental connection here between faith and baptism. Now, the other night, Forrest Gump was on, and I'll get to that in a second. Before I do, I want to tell you about something that I found uh, when I was doing some digging around in preparation for this service. This is a thing called a mikvah. That's your Hebrew for tonight. Is everyone comfortable with that? Everyone say mikvah? I'm sure that's exactly the pronunciation, so now you're ready to go to Jerusalem. So what is it? It's a little ceremonial bath. And there are lots of these, apparently, around Jerusalem. The idea is, in the Old Testament that you were supposed to be washed to be made pure before you went to the temple or before you had certain things forgiven. And so what they would do is, uh, if we fill this with some water, nice, magically, uh, what they would do is they'd walk down the steps and say, my old person is going into the water. I am sinful. They'd wash in the water, immerse themselves fully in the water, then stand up and come up made new, purified. Now what the Christians then did is they took this symbolism and they said actually what we can do is this new life we want to talk to you about with Jesus we're going to say this is what baptism is you go down your old life you're buried with Jesus and then as you come up out of the water you are symbolically raised with Jesus you die to your old life and you rise to a new life it's acted out in front of you you experience that sensation of dying and rising again. Now, I mentioned uh, Forrest Gump, which I love to bits. Uh, In the New Testament, these things, faith and baptism, hang together all the time. And there's a beautiful turn of phrase in Forrest Gump, if you know it. They're like peas and carrots together, right? They're things that belong together. Faith and baptism belong together. Unfortunately, these days, uh, we create an artificial divide. We split up faith and baptism. We kind of separate them from each other. And when we do that, it raises a bunch of unusual questions for us that you're no doubt going to ask me in question time. Because what happens is when, that, when we do that, we get, our, we get differing emphases on baptism. How important is it? Is it really important or is it not very important at all? And it's mostly because we've artificially separated them And now we ask questions that the New Testament doesn't really seek to answer. 
It should be a natural thing that they're together, not an optional thing that you can add into your Christianity. Let me show you how central it was that they operate together by looking at a quick little passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's writing to them saying, you guys are one. Here are the things that make you one. Have a listen to all these ones. Make every effort, he says in verse 3, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, and there is one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see the idea? You're united in baptism. If there were people who weren't baptized, they wouldn't be united in it. Do you see? It must just be so common that he can say we're all baptized together into one body. In short, in the New Testament, to be Christian was to be baptized. Now, I want you to see being baptized isn't just getting wet. It includes you in Jesus. If we know the Jesus story, he was crucified He died, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, and now he lives a new life from which he will never die. This is the Jesus story. What it tells us here in Romans chapter 6 is your baptism, my baptism, includes Christians in Jesus' story. We're included in Jesus' story. And so in verse 6, we see we're crucified with him. We're told we died with him. We were buried with him. We were raised with him. And we will have new life with him. Baptism includes you in Jesus' story. Our baptism into Jesus' death involves us in Jesus' destiny too. Uh, Your baptism won't kill you though, right? Okay, so we died with Jesus in baptism. So you might go, don't, don't get baptized. It'll kill you. It will spiritually, but not actually. All right? Uh, I was telling um, some people the other night that uh, when we used to do baptisms uh, down by the beach, uh, down at Wollongong where I used to uh, do church, and maybe we'll do some coming up soon. But as we would walk out with the person who was to be baptized, uh, my friend who was the, uh, the, the, the uh, more senior of the two of us on the ministry team would say to the people as we're walking out, he would say, The bigger the sinner, the deeper you go. Hilarious. And they just have, and and then I just watch it. You know, everyone's from the, they're they're on the the shore watching, right? And I just watch Bruce just go, and then pull them back up. It's fantastic, right? But you won't die. You might go deep, but you won't die. Okay, we're spiritually dying. We're being included with Jesus's story. That's what's happening. And so he says in verses six and seven, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. See, death dethrones sin. What, What essentially happens is when we sin, God has a punishment for our sin. He says the punishment for sin is, that's right. And so until I die, the punishment for sin is hanging over my head. If I died with Jesus then that punishment is effectively wiped out. I am no longer under the condemnation, under the rule of sin. It has no hand on me because I've died with Jesus. Do you see this? So it can't rule you anymore. Death dethrones sin, but it leaves the position of who will be the new Lord open. Now, to help us with that idea, 
um, I'm going to pick up my third musical instrument for the day. Now, John, I haven't broken any instrument today. I picked up a cello and another guitar. Uh, now, it's worth saying, uh, my experience with musical instruments is pretty bad. Uh, I was asked to stop playing the recorder in year three. So I'm not going to do anything with this, okay? That, that's, but, but here's the thing. What, what, is this, what is this guitar doing at the moment, right now? No, that's right. I think it's probably fearing for its life. That's what it's doing, right? Okay. Please don't do anything with me. John's certainly thinking that, I'm sure. So here's the thing. Here's this instrument. An instrument in and of itself doesn't do anything. It is waiting for a musician to come and do something useful with it. It's at the disposal of a musician. It needs somebody skilled to be of use. Brothers and sisters, that is us. That is us. Have a listen to how Paul uses this turn of phrase in Romans. Have a look with me at verses 11 to 14. In the same way, he says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under law, but under grace. So here's the thing. Don't get played by sin. Don't get played by sin. Instead of having sin as your master, you are now in a position to make an offer to God. You should make an offer, it says here, not offering yourself to sin and wickedness, but offering yourself to God as instruments of righteousness. Our desire now is to say to God, I'm yours. Play your tune through me. Bring your song into the world through me. And I, I, I think it's important that we note, it says there, and offer every part of yourself to him. It's all of our life that God wants from us. All of it, every part that he wants. And so I've been finding this idea of offering myself to God really helpful in my battle against sin recently. And so I've started praying this prayer in the morning. So I get up early in the morning, and what am I going to do? Pray a prayer. Here's the prayer that I found that's pretty helpful. Pray anything you want. This is the one I found, right? It's from the Book of Common Prayer. It says, Lord God Almighty and Everlasting Father, you've brought us safely into this new day. Preserve us with your mighty power that we may not fall into sin. That's pretty usual. I want you to see where it goes next nor be overcome by adversity, and in all we do, direct us to the fulfilling of your purpose through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Can you see the difference here? It's not just, Lord, don't let me sin. It's saying, I am putting myself at your disposal, God. Do what you want through me. Do you see the difference? I found that incredibly helpful. And what I want to encourage you to do is, is to think through, are there parts of yourself that you find hard to offer to God? Parts that you go, God, I wouldn't want you to be working through me in this area. We want to be praying about that and asking God to help us. Now, I said there was two questions in this passage. Paul's just finished by saying in verse 14, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under law, but under grace. 
And he anticipates a question that comes. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Now, this is a funny one. I don't think that you and I naturally go, oh, yeah, that's my next question. But let me put it to you this way. What if I told you, as you leave the building tonight, there is no speed limit in Orem Park? How long will it take you to get home? Would it be exactly the same time as previously? Or would you go, yeah, baby. My little car sits in stop-start traffic for the whole, I'm going to see if I can open it up and see how quickly, I, how quickly could I get home. Kate and Graham, you might not open up, you will just walk at the same pace. That's very good. But here's the thing. I think that's the essence of the question, right? If we're not under law, but under grace, should we just keep sinning? Wouldn't that be excellent? With unrestrained lives, what would happen? Paul says that's ridiculous, by no means. But I want you to see why he says that we shouldn't just sin because we're under grace, not under law. It's got something to do with slaves. Now, when we think about slaves in the ancient world, you and I might be thinking, hey, slaves, they probably have to work really hard through the day and then they get a good rest at night and they come back and they're slaves again in the morning. That's not how it worked. Somebody owned you. There was no downtime. There was no time when you were not at the beck and call of your master. The master owned you. He owned your spouse, and by virtue of the fact that you were both owned, your children were born into slavery. That's how the Roman Empire worked. It was built off the back of slaves. Now, Paul is going to say something terrible about what we were slaves to. And I want you to see what his answer is. Interestingly enough, I think his logic is that humans will be slave to whoever we obey. If you're always obeying someone, you're a slave to them. And so he says, this was your state. We're going to look at the verses that follow, verse 14 to the end of the chapter, under these three headings here. Your old life, the change that happened, and then the new life that God has won you into. Have a look at what this, what this looks like. So Paul says that we started off as slaves to sin, which leads to death. So you and I were, without a break, obeying our master whose sin. And the outcome was that we were heading towards death. He says, now though, something else is happening. You're slaves to obedience, which leads you to righteousness. That's your new life. He says, you've been set free from sin. The Christian is someone who's been set free from sin. And you think, great, I'll never have to obey anyone again. I'm free from sin. And then he surprises us because he says that we're slaves to righteousness, not free from everything, free from sin to be slaves to righteousness. He says we used to offer ourselves as slaves to impurity. He says now we need to offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness, which leads to holiness. He says that we were slaves to sin, which was leading to shame and death. And guys, I've spoken to you about sin before. Sin always lies. Did you know this? Sin always lies. What it tells us is, choose yourself. Choose what God doesn't want. It'll be better for you. Do it. Go on. What's to stop you? 
And every single time we choose that way, brothers and sisters, I say from personal experience, it leads to shame. We never feel better having indulged our sinful nature, do we? We never do. And so the lie of slaves to sin is that it'll be better, and it's never better. It leads to shame and death. But here's the good news. But now, look out for these words in Romans. But now, but now you've been set free from sin that you might be slaves to God, which leads to holiness and this amazing thing that you can't get anywhere else, eternal life. Can you see the contrast here? We were slaves to sin and we were set free to be slaves to righteousness. We're always going to be slaves, brothers and sisters. We're always going to be slaves. The question is, who's your master? Who's your master? And so what's on offer really is two things. We're either slaves to death or slaves to God, which leads to eternal life. And then we see this beautiful verse, 623. Uh, I, I asked some people this morning to highlight it in their church Bibles. So have you, got a, have you got a Bible that's got a highlight in it? If you don't, you could highlight it very neatly, please. But in your, uh, in your Bible, in 623, we have this amazing verse. It says this, the wages of sin is death. In other words, what sin has been doing is been building up in your bank account death. But that's not the final word. It says here, the gift of God is eternal life. God wants to give us life eternal. So pick your master. You're going to obey one, and only one master is for you. Only one master is for you. That's God. So what have we seen? We've seen that we died with Jesus when we were included with him. We've seen that Christianity is about offering our lives to Jesus And we've seen that Christianity is defined by who we are obeying. And I go, great. All right, church, you're free. Go out and not sin. No problems. None of us will sin again. Is that right? That's not going to happen, is it? So let me just have the bit before we have the question and answer time where I go, okay, 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 okay. We're going to sin again. What should we practically do? If you've heard this sermon, what should we practically do? I want to suggest three things for you. The first one is to think about your orientation. What what do I mean by that? At our worst, Christians are people who are trying to find the edge of sin. We're right near the edge of the cliff. How fast can I go before I'm breaking the law? What can I do with my tax return that isn't quite illegal? What can I do with this? We're always trying to find the edge. And finding the edge focuses us on sin. And so it's like saying to you, don't think of a pink elephant. Right, and what are you thinking about? A pink elephant. Don't sin has us obsessing about sin. I want to talk to you about orientation. What if? What if you and I didn't think about not sinning, but turned around? Instead of looking at the cliff edge of sin and went this way and said, there's righteousness and holiness this way. What would it look like if I said, God, show me holiness in my driving? Show me holiness in my relationships. If we go towards God, there is unlimited freedom. You can run that way forever and you'll find holiness and life and hope. 
Instead of asking where the edge of sin is, turn towards God and go, God, show me what holiness looks like. Does that make sense? We need to be looking to Jesus, not so much to sin. The the second thing I want to do is talk to you about obedience, a word that we definitely don't like. Now, I'm going to talk about some hypothetical children at the moment. Okay, not my children, not your children, hypothetical children. Imagine you had some children, right? Somebody, somewhere had children. And they got a report from school that said, they are so good at school. They always do whatever I ask them. They're the most beautiful children at school. And the parent goes, hypothetical parent, of course, I don't ever see that at home, right? They are not like that at home. Now, if that child was really good at school and never good at home, would we say that they're doing well? No, no, what we'd want them to do is have consistency across their behavior. Imagine you're God. And you say, God, I am working really hard to be a good Christian. Over here, I am the sort of person that you want me to be. But on the weekend, or maybe it's when I'm at work, or maybe it's when I'm, this set of, when I'm with this set of friends, I am somebody utterly other than what you want me to be. Why don't we try and think of obedience as a consistency all the way through our life? I will choose to put God's standard first in every part of my life. You see, what we want to be doing is pleasing Jesus and not ourselves. The third uh, thing I want to say to you has to do with offering ourselves. I I want to encourage you to practice what what I've been just trying to get into a little bit myself. Why don't you start your day by saying, Jesus, have me. My life is in your hands. It's so exciting to think, rather than God save me from sinning today, God, you've prepared good works for me to do. What would it look like today if I put all of my life in your hands? What could happen? Guys, we talk about living a life that's faithful, adventurous, compassionate, and enduring. If you want to know what an adventurous life is, wake up in the morning and say to God, my whole life today is in your hands. Do with me whatever you would want for your glory. Because that's exciting. That's actually exciting. We're talking about sin today, and I'll say to you, what if the opposite isn't striving not to sin, but instead opening our hands and offering our lives to Jesus? We need to be presenting our lives to Jesus, not withholding them. So here we are, guys. It's Sunday night. I guess Paul could have just said, hey, church, don't sin in a really stern voice. And he didn't do that, although he does say, don't sin. He says much more. Why? Why does he do that? Why does he say all of chapter 6? I think because he believes right understanding leads to right thinking. Right thinking leads to right living. You and I need to think better about sin in order that we might live more righteously before God. Who are you, church? We are the people who have died to sin. And if that's true, how can we live in it any longer? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for Paul's beautiful argument here. Lord God, we literally wouldn't know this about you if Paul hadn't written it in this letter. And I pray that we might rejoice in the fact that we're included with Jesus and his destiny. I thank you, Father, that because we've died, we're set free from sin and we can choose to offer ourselves to you. Help us to live in ways that are pleasing to you this week with the joy of running towards you rather than just avoiding sin. 
But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, yeah, thanks, Jeff. Jeff's got the microphone. That's great. Uh, Does someone have a question? That might help us to think some more about this topic or that might clarify something that you heard me say and you went, huh, why'd you say that? Someone got a question? Love to hear from you. What is sin? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Thanks, Claire. Sin is what we do that puts our priority before God's priority. So God wants what is good and best for us. Sin is when we say to God, God, I don't want you in my life. I'm choosing my way. So sin is choosing my way, not God's way. Okay. What do I mean by example? What if you lead by example? Well, hopefully everyone will be trying hard to do this. If you're talking personally, can you lead by example? Each one of us will be trying to say no to sin and yes to God. Yeah. Yeah, Ali. Um, So if there's a fundamental connection between faith and baptism, does it matter how we do it? Should, Should we be doing it as infants? Is our denomination doing it unhelpfully if there's that? artificial divide should we put it back together or yeah great question uh so if there's a fundamental connection if they're peas and carrots faith and baptism are together uh what about infant baptism essentially is that the question yeah so the first answer to that is uh yes we baptize kids here why do we do it we say that we baptize the children into the faith of the adults and then we ask the children to own the faith that they were baptized into in confirmation Okay, so we would say there is faith involved in child baptism. It's the parents' faith on behalf of the children, okay? One of the reasons that we find this really difficult is because as people in the West, we think fundamentally in individual units, okay? The most important person in the world is, well, not you, it's me, isn't it? No, no, that's right. We're the most important person in the world. And so when we think about baptism, we just go, unless I have done it, unless I'm at the center of it, it can't be true. What happened in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, was a worldview that said family and household is the unit we should think in. Family and household. Okay? And so in family and household, what happens is one person, uh, the Philippian jailer in the book of Acts, okay, he comes to faith. And then it says... He and his whole household were baptized. And we go, scandal. How can they baptize the whole house? Did he sit down and individually interrogate every member of the household to make sure they had individual faith before he did this indulgent thing? No, that's not what happened. What he said was, the unit is household. There is a household leader who has chosen to trust in Jesus. This body of people will now be baptized into the faith of the person who is the head of the household. Now, you might not like that. You might think that doesn't, but that is how it worked in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, okay? And so when we go, how can we baptize children? I would say what we're doing is we're recognizing the faith of the household and we're joining the child into it. We've created something that isn't in the Bible, Ali, called confirmation, okay? And the reason we've done that is because we're so individualistic. Okay, because we're so individualistic, we want to go, yeah, 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 that's great, kid, but do you believe? And so I think very helpfully, we've got a moment where kids will stand up in the front and they'll say, I got baptized as a child. 
And now I'm telling you, church, that faith, that's my faith. And so that's why we do child baptism and confirmation. If it's only child baptism, I think that's a shame. We want to do the two together, hand in glove. Does that make sense? Okay. Some other questions? Um, Mary was a virgin and she had Jesus. Does that put a lot of value on children? Like, does that make a child um, always seen as good and appreciated a lot more? I think that Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And that says that children are immensely valuable to God. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Have we got any other questions? Happy to chat over supper. If you've got other things, baptism is always an interesting, uh, interesting area to be talking about. I hope that you've heard today something that encourages you to run towards Jesus, not just turn away from sin. We are going to continue right now by taking out our Care and Connect cards. If you can do that, um, that would be really helpful. We have some people who are happy to welcome you if this is your first time at church. Uh, you might like to use this Care and Connect card to say, I'd like to join a life group. That's a way to get connected here at church. You might like to say, I'd like to have our newsletter sent out to you. Give us your email address. You might like to come to a new and newish lunch. Uh, you can let us know. Just tick the box on the card that says, I'm new here. And if you're not new here, we want to hear from you anyway. Just write down on the card, I was ear. It was so fun this morning. I got a bunch of Karen Connect cards that literally have I was ear on it, which is fantastic. But seriously, every week we'd love to hear from you. If there are things that are happening in your life that you'd like us to pray for, the staff get together on a Monday morning, we'd love to pray for you. So please use this time to fill out the cards and then we're going to finish in song. So I'll give you a moment uh, to fill those in. At the end of the service, they just go in the letterboxes uh, on the back table there where Lily is. Lily, give us a wave. Thanks, Lily. Uh, if you can put them on the table at the back there with your Bibles, that would be fantastic. Now, we're going to finish in song. Here's the wonderful thing. You're not under law, you're under grace. You don't need to sin. And so we're going to sing about the amazing grace that God has offered us because our chains are gone. Let's stand and sing.